Tonight's topic is wisdom, the third of the three trainings, the first being the training in virtue, the second the training in the development of the mind or concentration, and the third in the training of wisdom. And I've titled this talk, Wisdom, Knowing the Conditioned and the Unconditioned. If the threefold training of sila, samadhi, and panya, or virtue, concentration, or mental development, and wisdom, is understood as simply a linear progression, it might appear as though wisdom, or the aspect of panya, occurs as the culmination of practice. But interestingly, in the structure of the Eightfold Path, which is um, the Eightfold Path can be divided into these three sections. The section of the Eightfold Path that describes the training in virtue, the um, section that describes the training in the development of mind, and the third as the training in wisdom. That, um, that aggregate of wisdom occurs at the beginning of the Eightfold Path, not at the end of the Eightfold Path. It includes the aspect of wise view or understanding and of wise thought or intention. So this, um, this right view and right intention precede the training in right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I find this interesting because it reinforces the simple fact that we need wisdom just to begin. There are many ways that panya or wisdom can be understood in the context of the Buddhist practice. And I want to speak first about wisdom on a very practical, relative level. Basically, how we conduct our lives well. How do we cultivate the mind? How do we learn to engage in some practices and not others? This involves the repeated reflection on what's wholesome and what's unwholesome. It involves a reflection and a consideration of the consequences of our actions. This reflection on cause and effect, on wholesome and unwholesome, involves a reflection on the basic workings of karma and conditioning. And this sets the stage for the possibility to engage in skillful actions and cultivate sila. We must reflect from the point of view of wisdom to determine what is a right action, what is right speech, and what is right livelihood. Repeatedly reflecting on the wholesome and the unwholesome, as I spoke about two weeks ago. In this sense, wisdom can be understood as the foundation of virtue. But wisdom can also be understood as the support for samadhi, for concentration and the unification of mind. We need to reflect in ways regarding the skillfulness and unskillfulness of the development of our mind so that we consider how is it that we're undertaking meditation practice? How are we undertaking this, ag- these, this aggregate of effort, concentration, and mindfulness that compose so much of our mental development in meditation? Is our practice balanced? Are we developing the various factors that need to be developed and balancing them, balancing the energy with the concentration, balancing the investigation with the tranquility? Is our practice exploratory or is it static? 
Is the samadhi that we're developing leading to insight and liberating understanding? Or is it just a pleasant abiding? Are we entranced by meditative states of concentration? Or are we using the steadiness that we experience in order to free the mind from clinging? When the Buddha taught effort, which is one of these three that compose the aggregate of of samadhi, he spoke of effort not just by saying, hey guys, try harder. He taught what's known as the four wise efforts. This is the effort to avoid unwholesome states that have not yet arisen. The effort to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. The effort to cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And the effort to maintain wholesome states that have already arisen. So this is to avoid, abandon, cultivate, and maintain. Wisdom is embedded in the very training of how we direct the attention in order to concentrate the mind. Both the training in sila and the training in samadhi rest in the power of wisdom, simply to discern the difference between what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, what's skillful and what's unskillful. Now many of us have already tasted the empowerment that wisdom can bring to our lives. We might realize that as our practice has been plodding along over the days, weeks, months, or years, we might find that there's simply a greater range of choices that we have in our lives, some sense of ease. Sometimes just the slightest pause and a brief reflection to consider the consequences of our actions opens up an opportunity to not engage in something harmful or to engage in something helpful that we may not even have recognized before. Sometimes we take the moment to not just abandon a moment of craving or wanting or desiring or a reaction, but we take a moment to investigate that craving and understand how is it that craving leads to suffering. This investigation can unhinge the mind from the compulsions that have previously had us compelled to act in certain habitual ways. Sometimes we may just find that there's greater ease in our lives, that there's a bit more peace, a bit more um, uh, rest. And perhaps we may find that there's a little more courage, a little more inner strength, perhaps the courage to, um, to stand for something that we, that we feel strongly about. Perhaps it's an inner courage simply to feel the pain of grief, of a loss, or the difficult emotions that we may have previously um, pushed aside. We may simply find that we have a greater appreciation of life, a greater love of life, and in that, a greater inspiration to dedicate our time and our energy to what really matters. Most people notice some improvements in the quality of their lives through the cultivation of this training. And that gives us a sense that something is happening, that the practice is working. Maybe we're not quite enlightened yet, but at least we're a little more patient, or we're a little more kind, or we're a little more happy. 
these developments of patience, kindness, equanimity, the capacity to bear pain in life, calmness, and compassion. I would not underestimate the value and importance of these kinds of experiences. This is something that we can all do, that we can all train the mind in. We can all grow in wisdom. And we can allow that wisdom to inform the development of our practice so that we develop very steadily in the line of wholesome qualities. This is within the scope of what each and every one of us can do. When I was practicing in India and Thailand, much of the teachings within those cultures really taught that this growth in wisdom, this growth in the Dharma, is our duty. It is the worthy use of a precious human birth. So in a very practical sense, we learn. And in that way, we recondition our minds to respond to conditions with wisdom and clarity. So wisdom can be understood as a relative factor of mind. We can replace unwise responses with a tendency to respond wisely. But we can go further than that. There's also the possibility to realize the unconditioned, a realization that will give rise to a quality of wisdom more profound than even the most skillful manipulation of our old patterns and personality adjustments. It points to a direct and immediate encounter with life beyond concepts, beyond thought, beyond mind, and beyond the personal realm of experience. So how might one cross from the skillful and wise reflections on the conditioned to a realization of the unconditioned, beyond mind. What happens when you let go of a desire or a reaction and you feel the peace of that release? Many, many times, thought will arise in the meditation. We'll let go of the thought or a reaction will arise. Maybe there's anger or maybe there's frustration or maybe there's um, a wanting or craving. We recognize it with mindfulness and let it go. There's a quality of peace in that moment. That's a very interesting moment to explore. Look to see right in that moment what is actually happening, where the attention is focused. Notice particularly if you are focused on the release of the object, on the letting go, on the wise action that you took, or if you can rest within the release of the bare knowing of non-clinging. With wisdom, we take the appropriate action of avoiding, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining. We consider cause and effect. We repeatedly reflect on the wholesome and unwholesome roots of our endeavors. But we do not stop there to marvel at how well we've handled the situation. In that moment of deep peace, we look further. We, we, we look into the mind. What is the nature of mind? What is this experience of non-clinging? We look into the direct experience of liberation through non-clinging without being fascinated by how we got there. 
without being attached to the methods, the meditation objects, our feelings, or progress. We get to know those moments directly when the mind is free from clinging as the release that is the manifestation of wisdom. Often, though, at these critical junctures, the mind comes in, and maybe it doubts the path, maybe it doubts our capacity to experience this, or it claims the experience for itself. Even after a profound opening to the knowing that's beyond mind, a little thought can arise that clings to the skillfulness of that experience or of our action, or it attributes some particular meaning or some significance or some conceptual understanding to that experience. Reveling in spiritual experiences, we might think about, ah, this was a really profound event. Or we might think about what it means or we might compare it to things we've read in the suttas or heard about in Dharma talks. Or we might think how lucky we are to have had this experience. It's a sad moment, but people discover too often that what they're left with is merely a meditation tool to use and apply in different situations. How common it is when we've had a deep and profound insight that instead of honoring that experience by allowing it to take us further, what's called squeezing the honey out of it or pressing out pure honey, We simply see where else we can use it, who we can tell about it, what accomplishment we've gained, who might confirm this accomplishment. Or worse yet, we might instruct other people how to fix their problems with this shiny new meditation tool that we have experienced and devised. Partly this could seem generous to share our wisdom. But it also too often stops the exploration before it's complete. There can be a subtle identification that creeps into our relationship with spiritual experience. And that keeps us gripping the methods and the techniques, which are all the more seductive because we know they produce results. Meditators can become attached to the path rather than realizing the end of the path. Wisdom practices are tempting processes to cling to because they are so valuable. Sometimes it's very difficult even to perceive our identification with the method and the technique. We might not recognize how it is that our self-concept and self-image is feasting on the understandings of the Dhamma. The Buddha offered us this noble eightfold path and the system of the three trainings of sila, samadhi, and panya. But this is a path that is embraced from beginning to end in wisdom. Wisely undertaking this training asks us to live harmlessly, to practice well with balance, with wisdom, yes, but also to not take up these practice conventions as yet another arena for clinging. Commitment to what is harmless and wholesome and what works is admirable. 
dedication to the wise reflection that keeps us checking our practice in meditation, the development of our mind, and our conduct in life to see that it's leading in a direction that we really wish to go. That's admirable. That's wonderful. And we must look beyond these relative aspects of wisdom and skillful means to unravel every aspect of clinging that could be lurking underneath our experience. Even that subtle clinging that prefers one practice over another or that expects three rings of the bell at the end of the sitting instead of two or five or twenty. That sense that creates a, a sense of being someone because I understand what was said in the Dhamma talk. We might find that there's a subtle way that we're clinging the Eightfold Path, hoping that if we could just get these eight steps right, then we'll be happy or our lives will be worthwhile. But our task is bigger than this, or more immediate than this. We must untangle any clinging, wherever it is, to methods, to techniques, to rites, to rituals, to conventions, to views, to concepts, to personality, to identity, to knowledge and experience. And we untangle that identification right in the moment that they have done their job. The simile of the raft is one of the great illustrations that speak of the wisdom of letting go. The Buddha described the building of a raft and using that raft to paddle across the river of suffering. And when we arrive at the other shore, we do not pick up that raft and carry it as a burden on our shoulders, but we leave it at the banks and travel unburdened, liberated from all attachments, even the attachments to our most cherished methods. At some point in our development, we will find that our meditation is strong, that our minds are clear, that there's a stability in our presence, that our virtue, our sila, our actions in life are quite acceptable. And we also have a fairly clear understanding of the Dhamma teachings. So when that happens, when our practice is more or less kind of plodding along fine, that's a moment to consider and to ponder, okay, the conditioned practices are in order, but what's unconditioned? What's uncaused? What's beyond cause and effect? Rather than focus on the path, reflect what is the end of the path? When I ask this question, what is the end of the path? What is the unconditioned? Notice what happens within you, what your inner response is. Is there any inner tension or fear or trepidation? Is there any doubt? Any question of your own worthiness to experience the unconditioned? Is there any frustration, perhaps a desire to understand, but a frustration that the mind can't quite get it, can't quite grapple with it or grasp it? 
If you notice any fear or any tension in the mind when you hear of the unconditioned, see if you can release just that fear and still want to know the unconditioned. You might notice, though, that there's joy and delight in hearing the word the unconditioned. There might be inspiration, trust, a kind of inner release and letting go. You can allow this love of freedom to guide you, to guide you safely from the conditioned to the unconditioned, from the relative aspects of skillful living to realize something that is beyond effort, beyond mind, and beyond our actions. The desire to live free is not the desire that should be abandoned midstream. This desire for awakening, this ineffable force of wisdom, commitment, and love takes us where no action and no thought could take us. In the Udana, there is a beautiful um, verse, um, 1.10 where water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. There, the stars do not shine. The sun is not visible. The moon does not appear, and darkness is not found. And when a sage, a worthy one, has known this for herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and pain, she is freed. Right view, also translated as right understanding, samaditi, is the first step of the Noble Eightfold Path. Even though craving to understand the Dhamma can sometimes create a sense of fear or resistance or tension in the mind, it can create a sense of a gap between where we are and where we want to be, sparking fear that can fuel the clinging to the multitude of worldly and spiritual methods, pursuits, and techniques. Even though there is danger in in a clinging relationship to this first step, we cannot disregard the immense value of clarity and right understanding. But unchecked, desire to understand can propel us into useless and wasteful ways of seeking knowledge. We might gain shelf bookcases stocked full of books that we read long ago, but want to keep there to prove that we read them. Or minds that are just cluttered with trivial bits of information. Or immense fortunes that are spent on formal education. But has this accumulation of knowledge brought more peace, compassion, or love into our lives or into the world? What is the education that really matters? There's a story of a poor man who was walking along a riverbank on his way looking for work. As he was walking along this river, he saw a beautiful yellow stone and picked it up and was just kind of tossing it back and forth, kind of juggling and 
this stone as he walked along, and after a while tired of it and tossed it into the river and continued his walk. A short time later, he approached a a bend in the river where there was a group of men and women who were in the shallow waters digging for something in the mud, sifting through the mud. And he asked them what they were doing, and they told him that they were mining for gold. They wanted to become rich. And so this poor man thought, well, I also would like to become rich. And so he took one of the pans that was sitting at the bank of the river, and he got into the river and bent down and started sifting through the mud looking for gold. And he did this for a long, for hours and hours and hours. His, his back ached, his legs hurt, he was shivering from the cold. But he was hoping that he would become rich. Then a little further down the, um, the river, he heard a woman cry out, Eureka! And she was holding up a yellow stone that looked very, very much like the one that he had tossed into the river a short time before. In ignorance, not knowing its value, he had tossed his wealth away. This unfortunate man didn't know the value and the importance of what he had had. Reflect for a moment how strong is your interest how strong is your commitment to realize the unconditioned even in the face of not knowing what to do how to get it or what that actually is how strong is the interest the commitment the love for freedom see if you can stay with not knowing without grasping Are you willing to open to a quality of innate wisdom beyond all that the mind can describe? A quality of knowing that will not produce any benefit? No letters to print after your name on your business card? No monetary prize? No publications? No tools to apply to solve your problems at home? And perhaps no respect from your friends, your family, your community, your teachers. In the uncertainty of knowing, an untrained mind will grasp anything. And the most seductive things to grasp will be whatever we have that's the best. And those will be our skillful practices. So stay present. Keep investigating. Awaken the experience of not knowing, continuously training the mind in non-clinging, non-grasping. Then we will recognize the nature of all conditioned things. Whatever we experience, we will see what it is, as it is. Empty phenomena that arise, that change, and that cease. All the conditioned things that we'll experience at any sense store are subject to the laws of impermanence, karma, and death. When we meet the simple fact of this, that all conditioned things are subject to impermanence, karma, and death, we meet that with clarity. Then we can look to see what else might be known, what is uncaused, unchanging, 
and deathless. This will be a way of seeing without eyes, of hearing without ears, of knowing without mind, another order of knowing where no thing is known, a knowing that is utterly unshakable. It's a knowing that occurs to no one, requires no confirmation, and accomplishes nothing. As the Buddha taught, where water, where earth, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing, there the stars do not shine, the sun is not visible, the moon does not appear, and darkness is not found. And when a sage, a worthy one, has known this for herself, then from form and formless, from bliss and from pain, she is freed. Let's sit a few minutes. Quiet. Questions, comments, discussion. Topic of three trainings, wisdom, the conditioned and the unconditioned. Oh, yeah, but I talked about those in the last two weeks. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course, the development of sila overcomes the grasping at um, unwholesome um, things that lead to unwholesome actions, um, impulses that lead to actions, and the training in the development of the mind um, uh, uh, reveals anything that's unwholesome within um, the way that we direct our effort or our um, anything preventing the unification and concentration of the mind, the stilling of the mind, or the mindfulness. So very much that's important. Um, just because this is a three-part series, um, I, 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 um, I thought I'd take it to the next, the next consideration. Um, but I think it is important to really um, understand the conditioned clearly. And it's really when we reflect upon our practice and see, like I, I spoke a little bit about, there's a moment when we rec- reflect on our practice and see, you know, we've kind of got the sila together and the samadhi is strong. There's mindfulness present. There's some comprehension of the teachings. And that's a perfect moment to then investigate what our relationship to that path is. Because we've already been dedicated to the path long enough to be developing it with that sincerity, and it's working. So then can we cultivate the path in a way that is completely free from clinging? 
so that we don't substitute a wholesome path and cling to that um, in, in place of an unwholesome path. Given the choice, if you're going to cling to something, it would be better to cling to the unwholesome. But, um, but it's still clinging. I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. You knew what I meant, though. It would be better to cling to the wholesome, um, just from the karmic perspective. But, um, but the, the Buddha said, there's, there's one sutta where he says, it doesn't matter where, what you cling to. When there is clinging, Mara stands beside you. I think that was in, well, I'm not sure where it was in, but... Um, so it doesn't, the object of the clinging, from the point of view of freeing the mind, it actually doesn't really matter what the object is. You know, from the point of view of not hurting your family and distorting your mind, that matters.